poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into the Bohemian Beat. I'm ready with you until the end of the hour with another poetic adventure into the theatre of your mind. And let's ease in with some music. I don't do well if I'm kept behind an office desk inside It makes me lose my mind which wanders endlessly Where all the birds fly freely with their silhouettes in perfect symmetry I've got a packet full of poetry I've got a head full of songs, a heart with wings You couldn't tie me down to anything and that's enough Drop doodles of eccentric faces in the margin spaces of Starting today with a poem by Anne Waldman, author of more than 40 collections of poetry. Born in 1945, Waldman was raised in New York City's Greenwich Village. She entered poetry in the beat movement. Armed with a feminist ideology and inspired by her beat elders, she began producing amazing works of poetry. 
Known for connecting her poetry with her work as a cultural activist and her practice of Tibetan Buddhism, she says she was drawn to the magical efficacies of language as a political act. This next piece is called Flame and it's from her 2007 audio recordings, Matching Half. A bouquet of perfume stars, sun in his hair, her wing in his hand. He said, put in, we are together. She did. She said, flame, as in you are mine, flame. It seems that humans were originally round organisms, each one composed of two humans, yet joined into one perfect sphere. They rolled around merrily until they grew overly ambitious and attempted to roll straight up to Mount Olympus which point Zeus cut them in two, punishing their hubris, sliced them in two like a flatfish. Each of us is perpetually hunting, hunting, hunting for the matching half of himself. Flame. limb of ourselves? Is it comparable to the perpetual search for a lost father or mother, or a desire to return one's clumsy, lonely flame? marvelous speech in Plato's Symposium, wherein he accounts for the nature of human eros or desire. 
It seems that humans were originally round organisms, each one composed of two humans, yet joined into one perfect sphere. They rolled around merrily until they grew overly ambitious and attempted to roll straight up to Mount Olympus, at which point Zeus cut them in two, punishing their hubris, sliced them in two like a flatfish. Each of us is perpetually half of himself and she said flame as in you are my flame as in you are my flame as in you are my flame or a desire Turn one's clumsy, lonely body to its original oceanic, amniotic fluidity. And that was Anne Waldman with her piece, Flame. Waldman emerged out of the beat movement, connecting with earlier generations of poets, including the likes of Allen Ginsberg, who referred to Waldman as his spiritual wife, William Burroughs, Diane de Prima, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and that's just to name a few, and the many, many, many more, more beat writers she's been involved in. Now, the beat generation was a group of authors whose literature exploded and influenced American culture in the post-World War II era. This next piece is a contemporary on the beat poets from a talk called Poetry and the 1950s by Robert Briggs. Robert Briggs is an American author and poet associated with the beat generation. He read poetry in the Jazz Cellar in San Francisco in 1957 and said, Jazz is to music what poetry is to knowing. This next piece from the talk is called Poetry is a Dangerous Business. I think... I think that what's not understood today is that the beat, not the beatnik, never the beatnik, is that the beat magnified and intensified the American experience, racked it with a kind of sweet, crazed seriousness that carried poetry out of the universities and into the streets and solitary rooms to prove that whenever we turn to poetry, we're not merely dealing with the difference between formalism and free verse. We're dealing with power, unusual power, which is simply that good poetry deals with feelings that haven't been identified, with answers to questions that haven't been asked. That's why poetry disturbs us so. Not because we fail to consider such questions, or explore such feelings, but because even when we do, we don't know how to accommodate those questions or manage the feelings, often we never know why we should, which is why poetry is a dangerous business. It wakes us up to the fact that in being disturbed, we're often inspired, and by being inspired, something new, something unimaginable invades our minds. And in everyday life, this is seldom so, especially in the 1990s when dictionaries still define poetry as 
the art of rhythmical composition that is written or spoken for exciting pleasure by beautiful and imaginatively elevated thoughts. Today, that's enough to make anyone wonder why we look to dictionaries for understanding when poetry offers something other, something de definition never satisfies. Literary? Literary? Ford Maddox Ford once said, now that's the last thing that verse should ever be. But if poetry's not literary, what is it? Well, many things. Poetry does more than justify God's ways to man or deify innocence or defy injustice. If wisdom's food for thought, then poetry's the nutrition of the spirit. It's a secret music of the heart, a rhythm of the mind that soothes strange pain and loneliness. Poetry is to language what the flower is to the field, what a rainbow is to the sky. Poetry is the DNA of the soul. Poetry is the language of consciousness, the vocabulary of which is infinite. And whether it's realized or not, consciousness, not consumerism, will be the crucible of the 21st century. By 2001, sane solutions will be found in meditation, not materialism, in spirit, not science. Which is why when properly read, a poem reveals whole new worlds of understanding that open the mind, often in an instant, to peculiar juxtaposition that ordinary awareness fails to produce. William Carlos Williams said it was difficult to get the news from poems. Yet people die miserable deaths every day for lack of what is found there. You know, however puzzling or pious it may be, a good poem's always a bit promiscuous because it can't be used. It uses us. Stephen Spender felt that when you read and understand a poem, comprehending its rich and formal meanings, then you master chaos a little. Of course, Maxwell Bodenheim thought poetry was an impish attempt to paint the color of the wind.
do Marvin Hassan of the last four things. The Lord to me, to me is, it, it's an experience. It, it, it's drama, it's passion, and it's trying to mold all of that into something that you can share with somebody else, to touch someone else, to make someone else feel their presence, or to raise their consciousness, or to give them some hope in life, or to give them an another direction if they're feeling pain. Poetry is a very powerful thing, and it takes very humble people to be able to use it. since 2007 across a community radio network. We just heard DJ Lamad with What is Poetry? featuring the last poets, Dr. Sonia Sanchez and Common. And before that, Poetry is a Dangerous Business from a series of talks by Robert Briggs called Poetry and the 1950s. A poet who is considered an influence on beat poetry is William Carlos Williams, an American poet who lived between 1883 and 1963. Williams wrote about American themes in the language of common speech. His poetry tried to discover the essence of everyday objects and experiences. Williams composed in free verse, allowing the subject matter and his feelings about it to determine the form of his poems. This next poem by Williams, The Descent, was written after he'd suffered a stroke. The poem explores the idea of memory, a descent into the mind, a turning inward. Can we face our failures, our despairs? 
The descent beckons as the ascent beckoned. Memory is a kind of accomplishment, a sort of renewal, even an initiation, since the spaces it opens are new places inhabited by hordes heretofore unrealized, of new kinds, since their movements are toward new objectives, even though formerly they were abandoned. No defeat is made up entirely of defeat, since the world it opens is always a new place, formerly unsuspected. A world lost, a world unsuspected, beckons to new places, and no whiteness lost is so white as the memory of whiteness. With evening, love wakens, though its shadows, which are alive by reason of the sun shining, grow sleepy now and drop away from desire. Love without shadows stirs now, beginning to awaken as night advances. The descent, made up of despairs and without accomplishment, realizes a new awakening, which is a reversal of despair. For what we cannot accomplish, what is denied to love, what we have lost in the anticipation, a descent follows, endless and indestructible. Trouble with the bills to the kids. 
Stephen Wilson with Happy Returns and before that William Carlos Williams reading his poem The Descent. William Carlos Williams has highly praised his contemporary Marianne Moore, an American modernist poet who lived between 1887 and 1972. Her poetry is noted for her formal innovation, precise diction, irony and wit. In the following poem, bird-witted, more explores the tensions of innocence and fallenness. Bird-witted. With innocent, wide, penguin eyes, the three large, fledgling mockingbirds below the pussy willow tree stand in a row, wings touching, feebly solemn, till they see their no longer larger mother bringing something which will partially feed one of them. Toward the high-keyed, intermittent squeak of broken carriage springs, made by the three similar, meek-coated, bird's-eye-freckled forms she comes, 
And when from the beak of one, the still living beetle has dropped out, she picks it up and puts it in again. Standing in the shade till they have dressed their thickly filamented pale pussy willow surface coats, they spread tail and wings, showing one by one the modest white stripe lengthwise on the tail and crosswise underneath the wing, and the accordion is closed again. What delightful note, with rapid, unexpected flute sounds leaping from the throat of the astute, grown bird, comes back to one from the remote, unenergetic, sunlit air before the brood was here. How harsh the bird's voice has become. A piebald cat observing them is slowly creeping toward the trim trio on the tree stem. Unused to him, the three make room, an easy new problem. A dangling foot that missed its grasp is raised and finds the twig on which it planned to perch. The parent, darting down, nerved by what chills the blood and by hope rewarded of toil, since nothing fills squeaking unfed mouths, wages deadly combat and half kills with bayonet beak and cruel wings the intellectual, cautiously creeping cat. play about birds called The Birds. And it's a short story from before the world began. From a time when there was no earth, no land. Only air and birds everywhere. But the thing was, there was no place to land. Because there was no land. So they just circled around and around because this was before the world began. And the sound was deafening. Songbirds were everywhere. Billions and billions and billions of birds. And one of these birds was a lark. And one day her father died. And this was a really big problem because what should they do with the body? And there was no place to put the body because there was no earth. And finally, the lark had a solution. She decided to bury her father in the back of her own head. And this was the beginning memory. Because before this, no one could remember a thing. They were just constantly flying in circles. Constantly flying in huge
listening to The Bohemian Beat, and that was Laurie Anderson with The Beginning of Memory. And before that, Marianne Moore reading her poem, Birdwitted. I would now like to welcome back to The Bohemian Beat, Northern Rivers storyteller Jenny Cargill with Stories That Matter. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Rita. So, what do you have for us this week? Well, last month when I was here, I read The Courtship and Marriage of... Inanna, which made some people blush, I heard, because um, there is a bit of ploughing that goes on of uh, one kind and another. But this one has n- nothing like that. This is a different kind of depth that gets reached. We're going to descend to the underworld. So this descent myth is the forebear of the Dance of the Seven Veils. It's the forebear of the Persephone myth, myth and some might say a template for the the stories of Jesus and his hanging on a hook because in this myth she also gets hung. And this is Inanna. Inanna. So the Sumerian goddess of Inanna. And um, the reason that I'm reading this particular myth today is because it relates to the labyrinth and I've been working on a project to do with a seven circuit labyrinth. So those of you who are not familiar with the labyrinth, it's a walking meditation um, and you walk in to the center and then you walk out and it's a very circuitous route but it's not like a maze you can't get lost in a labyrinth you can only find yourself uh, and it, it's a it's a spiritual journey so it relates to this descent myth because there are seven paths of this particular version of the labyrinth the seven circuit path and at each path you're able to there is a potential to drop away something let go of something let go of something until you come to the center where you find your essential self and then as you come back out you can come back out and allow yourself to be renewed and for the answers to your questions to be provided so that's how uh, in a very brief way I can describe the relationship to uh, this myth and and the labyrinth and now I'll tell the story 5,000 years ago in the v-shaped land bordered by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers The land we now call Iraq, there lived the Sumerians. They worshipped many gods and goddesses, but their favourite and most cherished was Inanna, their goddess of fertility, goddess of the rain, and when angry, a loud and thundering storm. She reigned for over a thousand years. Inanna married the shepherd Dumuzi, and bestowed upon him the divine kingship. Time passed. They had two sons. And, increasingly, Dumuzi spent time in his throne room, dressed in his shining royal robes, and he spent less and less time lying naked with Inanna, and less time honouring her in her temples. As Inanna was left increasingly alone, she realised that she needed a new challenge. And so it was that from the great above, she opened her ear to the great below. From the great above, the goddess opened her heart to the great below. From the great above, Inanna opened her soul to the great below. She gave up everything to descend to the underworld. 
she gave up her office as holy priestess to descend to the underworld. She gave up heaven and earth to descend to the underworld. In preparation for the journey, she donned seven pieces of magnificent regalia. She placed the shigura, the crown of the steppe, upon her head. She daubed her eyes with ointment called I See All. She tied the small, brilliant blue lapis beads around her neck, bound the breastplate called Come, man, come, around her chest, slipped the gold ring around her wrist, tied a girdle of birthstones around her hips, wrapped the royal white robe around her body, and took up the lapis measuring rod and line in her hand. So shielded and adorned, she set off. Ninshaba, her faithful servant, walked with her. Inanna said, My Sukal, who gives me wise advice, my warrior, who fights by my side, I am descending to the Kur, the underworld. If I do not return after three days, dress yourself in mourning, beat the dirge drum and wail for me. Go to the father gods and ask for my release. Go, Naninshabar, heed my words. Satisfied, she set off for the underworld, and at the first gate she knocked loudly. Yah, 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 she cried out in a fierce voice. Open the door, gatekeeper. Open the door, Nettie. I alone would enter. Nettie opened the door. She asked, Who are you? I am Inanna, queen of heaven and earth, on my way to the east. If you are truly Inanna, queen of heaven and earth, why has your heart led you on the road from which no traveller returns? Because of my older sister Erishkagal, her husband Gugalana, the bull of heaven, has died, and I have come to witness the funeral rites. Let the beer be poured into the cup, let it be done. Nettie descended, first shut the door, and then descended seven sets of steps. My queen, a woman as tall as heaven, as wide as the earth, and as strong as the foundations to the city walls, waits at the first gate to the palace. On her head she wears the shigura. She carries the lapis measuring rod and line in her hand. She claims to be your sister, and in short, your highness, she looks very royal. When Erishkagal, queen of the underworld, heard this news, her face darkened. Nettie, heed my words. My sister, queen of the great above, will be treated according to the laws and rights of anyone entering my kingdom. Let her enter naked and bowed low. Nettie ascended the seven flights of steps. She opened the first gate and beckoned. She says you can come in. But... At each of the seven gates, Nettie demanded one piece of her magnificent regalia, and each time Inanna asked, What is this? And each time she was told, The ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. Mm -hmm.
come falling on down Straight like an arrow, sky to the ground Bringing new life, bringing it all around yeah. All around on sweet mama earth Bringing new life, giving new birth Opening the seed, carrying the fruit from the flower yeah. Some people say they can sell you the rain Most people say that they're going insane Gathering the gold for your personal gain Well, come and come around and I'll drown you again In the water, water, the water to survive Need the water, water, what is keeping us alive Need the water, water, the water to survive Pure water, water The mountain high, glaciers born and the summer them die. Deep in the body, pure water runs deep. Flowing up above and the harvest we reap. This year a song for the waters I weep. How can it be that we're poisoning the blood that's been given to us? And the water now say that we cannot be trusted. Until we see once again that you poison yourself in the water, my friend. You poison your own blood in the water, water, the water to survive. Need the water, water, what is keeping us alive? Need the water, water, the water to survive. Pure water, water. Bring a new life And in every ocean Life giving life Giving life giving life. Every drop is a prayer Every river Every tear The water water, The water to survive Need the water What is keeping us alive? Need the water, water, the water to survive. Pure water, water, agua pura, pura vida. Yeah, my yeah, my yeah.
You are listening to the Bohemian Beat, and we just heard Murray Kyle with Aguapura Vidya. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Jenny Cargill with our Stories That Matter section, exploring the ancient Egyptian myth of Iana, retold in a modern narrative. Jenny, we're kind of running out of time. But, I'm going to um, do a quick... We can't leave her there. No. We'll get her out. <laughs> <laughs> at last, Inanna arrived at the throne room of the underworld. Arishkigal rose from her throne. Inanna took a step towards her dark sister, but before she could speak, the Anuna, the seven judges of the underworld, surrounded her. They cast judgment against her. Then Arishkigal cast upon Inanna the eyes of death. She spoke against her, the word of wrath. She uttered against her the cry of guilt. She struck her, and Inanna turned into a piece of rotting green meat and was hung from a hook on the wall. As soon as this happened, things in the great above began to go badly. No rain fell, no flowers bloomed, no fruit ripened, no calves or kids or children were born. So as her mistress hung prostrate and decomposing, Ninshaba went into action. She dressed in mourning sackcloth, beat the dirge drum and began to wail. They went to the temples of the father gods to beg for Inanna's release. But the father gods were angry that Inanna had gone to the underworld at all. She had broken all cosmic laws of life and death going there alive. But Enki, god of wisdom and watery deep, father of Inanna's mother, heard Ninshaba's plea. He fashioned from the dirt underneath his two fingernails two creatures who were neither male nor female with which to rescue Inanna. He gave them the food of life and the water of life and strict instructions of exactly how to rescue Inanna from the underworld. Like flies, they slipped through the cracks in the gates. When they arrived at the throne room, they found... Not only Enana hanging as a corpse on the wall, but Erishkagal moaning and groaning with the pains of a woman about to give birth or rebirth. Erishkagal was all alone, with nothing to kneel upon, no midwife, no friend to whisper encouraging words. Her hair swirled about her like leeks. She moaned, oh, my inside. And the two little flies sighed, oh, your inside. She moaned, oh, my outside. They sighed, oh, your outside. And as Arishkagal continued to moan and groan with the pain of her back, her heart, her liver, the two flies kept showing empathy, sympathy. And suddenly Arishkagal stopped. She looked at the two little flies. She said, Who are you who moan and groan with me? No one has shown sympathy in six hundred years. If you be gods, I will bless you. If you be mortals, I will give you a gift. I will give you the water gift. I will give you the river in all its fullness. But the two little flies said, No, we do not wish it. Well, just then, Arishkigal was seized with another great rebirthing pain. And they said, Arishkagal, if you do not give us that corpse that we ask for, your birthing pains will go on for eternity. But if you give that corpse unto us, your birthing pains will cease immediately. And so, unsurprisingly, Inanna's corpse was given unto them. The flies took her down off the hook, and they sprinkled upon her the food of life and the water of life, and Inanna arose. Thank you, Jenny, sharing your story about Inanna. And I should just quickly have a footnote that it's not my story, of course. It is the most ancient written text that we've 
been able to find, uh, 5,000 years old. Uh, and also that text was written down by Diane Rolkstein and I've just I've cut it back radically. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jenny. On the Bohemian Beat, we're Stories That Matter. For more information about Stories That Matter and for Jenny and the Labyrinth, check out storiesonfoot.com. And we, of course, have run out of time. Uh, tune in next week to the Bohemian Beat, same beat time, same Bohemian frequency. Check out the website, thebohemianbeat.com. We will end with Om by Adam Shaker. Thank you for joining us on the Bohemian Beat. <laughs>